if you were one of Jesus' 12 disciples and you had the opportunity for Jesus to teach you one thing, you had the opportunity to come to Jesus and ask him to teach you something, what would it be? Think of Jesus' life, think of all the things that he did, all the things that he accomplished, and you had the opportunity there with him, come before him and say, you know what, I want you to teach me, what would it be for you? You know, I thought of this question, and you know, I definitely uh, think one of the things I would ask Jesus to teach me is how to raise the dead. Uh, that would be a pretty impressive thing to, to learn how to do. Or uh, feed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. Uh, you know that there's a time in Jesus' life where he tells Peter to go and uh, grab a fish, and out of the fish's mouth comes this gold coin. And you know, that would be pretty nice to be able to have a gold coin come out of every fish you catch. Or um, Especially when I lived in Scotland, something that I really wanted is to learn how to calm a storm since it rained 300 days out of the year. But you know, what would it be if you could come to Jesus and ask him to teach anything that you could ask him? What would be that thing that you would ask him to teach you? Now, the reason I pose this question is because the disciples now here in chapter 11 of Luke are going to come to Jesus, and for the first time that we see in the Gospels, they're going to pose a question to Jesus and ask him to teach them to do something. It's the only recorded thing that we have of the disciples asking Jesus to teach them this certain thing. Uh, and I think it's very fascinating what they choose. Uh, and so this morning we're going to see what it is they ask Jesus to teach them. But more importantly, Jesus is going to respond by teaching them about this. And there's plenty that we can learn. So Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1, we're told this. Now it came to pass, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. The one thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to do was to pray. Now, I find that interesting because we don't see any record of Jesus, the disciples coming to Jesus saying, Lord, teach us to heal, teach us to teach, teach us to preach. I mean, all those things would have been very important things, but they come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And I think we get a little bit of a reason why they do this, because right before this, notice what Luke tells us Jesus is doing. Jesus is there in front of them praying. And when he finishes praying, then the disciples ask him, Lord, why don't you teach us to pray? You see, I think the disciples saw Jesus prayed a lot. We've seen that through the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus has taken a lot of time to pray. That was a priority in his life. It was something that was a significant part of his life, and I, and I think the disciples recognize that. You do this often, Jesus. It's important to you, and we want to learn how to pray like you do. Please teach us how to pray. You know, I always think if the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, had to depend on prayer during his life here on earth, how much more should you and I, sinful people, be praying? In fact, I think the true mark of our intimacy and dependency on the Lord is seen in how often we're given to prayer. We can't really claim that we're very dependent on God when we never come to Him in prayer or we never seek Him in prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, said this, Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face to God. It's in that place of prayer that we see God at His greatest, see God in His strength, but also as we see ourselves in light of who God is. We see our weaknesses, we see our need for Him. I would say prayer is one of the greatest privileges we have as Christians. 
And sadly, I'd also include with that, prayer is probably also one of the most neglected privileges we have as Christians. Think about it. The all-powerful creator of heaven and earth gives us the privilege of coming to him in prayer. He allows us to come to him. There's nothing that's too big for him, nothing too great for him. And we have the privilege of communing with him, communicating with him. The disciples saw Jesus regularly communicating through the Father through prayer, and now they come to him and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. So Jesus responds to their request by doing just that. Let's see what he has to say in verse 2. So Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What Jesus says here is one of the most memorized portions of the Bible. And I'm sure probably everyone here has probably heard all of this prayer, or at least portions of this prayer, quoted from people who have memorized it and who have said it. But we need to understand that Jesus didn't give us this prayer just to memorize it and repeat it. You know, a lot of Christians I know can memorize, they have memorized this prayer, they could quote this prayer to you, but they don't really understand what this prayer is revealing, what Jesus is trying to teach us through this prayer. He didn't just want us to speak it from memorization. This is a model prayer, a model to show us how to pray what we should include in our prayers, what we should focus on in our prayers. So it's not, all right, you want to know how to pray? Just repeat this every single time you pray and you'll be good. He's saying, no, I'm going to show you some things that you should always have in your prayer. It's a model prayer so you know who you're addressing, you know different things about prayer. And so we're going to break that down this morning and look at those things so that we can better understand how to pray in a proper way. Jesus is going to reveal to us three important things that should be in all of our prayers. And then after he does that, he's going to give us two important principles as we approach God in prayer. And so this morning we're going to see five very important things about prayer. And the goal of all of this should be not to leave with an intellectual understanding of, okay, I understand how to pray better, but still never take advantage of the wonderful privilege of prayer. The goal should be, now that I understand how to pray better, let me apply this to my life and actually utilize these things and pray. So let's start with the first thing that Jesus says should be in our prayers. Notice he starts off this model prayer by saying, When you pray, say this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing that should be in our prayer is an understanding of the relationship that we have with the one that we are praying to. Jesus says, Call him our Father. We have that child-father relationship, that intimate relationship with God. It's a privileged title demonstrating that wonderful, wonderful intimacy. You know, the, the Hebrew word here is Abba. When Jenny and I were in Israel, you would see little kids running up to their dad saying, Abba, Abba. You know, it's that word more literally translated daddy, that intimate phrase that you see from a child to their parents. As a father, I love to hear that with my girls come home, daddy, daddy, you'll come give me a hug. But you know what? It's a very privileged title because there's only two people in the entire world that can use that term with me. Because there's only two children that I have, and they're the only ones who can come and call me daddy, call me father, because I have that relationship with them. No one else has that relationship with me. It's a very intimate, it's a very blessed 
relationship. And for those of you who have been coming on Thursday nights, we looked in Ephesians chapter 1 of all the blessings that we've been given by God. And one of the most important ones of those blessings is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. We're told, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. One of the greatest blessings that we've been given as those who have accepted Jesus Christ is God has made us his children. And I want you to think about that because God didn't have to do that. When he died on the cross for our sins, he could have paid for our sins and just kept us as friends. All right, I dealt with your sin and made it possible for you now to be in my presence and now you and I can be friends. You and I can now have a relationship which sin separated that relationship before. But now we have that. But he goes a step further. He says, you know what? I don't just want you to be my friends. I want to adopt you into my family. I want to make you my children. I want to give you that special intimate access to me your Father. A wonderful, wonderful privilege. I want you to notice some of the things that Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, pray our boss in heaven. He doesn't say, pray our genie in heaven. He doesn't say, pray our to the angry God on the throne that you really don't have any relationship with. He says, our Father, because He wants us to understand it's a privileged and intimate relationship we have with God. Now, I brought up those other terms because I think oftentimes when we approach prayer, we approach prayer, I know for my own life, it's more like our boss in heaven. And with a boss, the only time you really get to have you know, that communication is when you do something that the boss approves of. And it's kind of this works mindset. If I do enough works, then I can come to God in prayer and he'll listen to me and he'll answer me. I know a lot of my you know, time in my life I spent with this mindset in prayer. I didn't feel like I could pray to God unless I earned it. I'd have to do some good work, and then if I did this good work now, you know, I deserve to have God listen to me, and now I can come to Him in prayer. But if I haven't done enough, or I didn't feel like I've done enough, then what's the point of coming to God in my mindset? Because He's not going to listen because I haven't earned it. I haven't achieved what I need to achieve in order for Him to listen to me. And so I'd only come to Him when I felt like I deserved it through what I did. I missed it. I missed it. I thought He was more of my boss than my father. Sadly, I think a lot of Christians approach God more as a genie than a father. In prayer, all it is is, I just come to God and He just grants my wishes. Hey, Lord, give me this and give me this and give me this and give me this. That's what prayer is all about. It's just, God, give me what I want. Isn't that what you're there for, just to give me all of my wishes? And, and sadly, there are many people who view God that way, view prayer that way. He's not the father. He's the genie who's just there to give them what they want. For some... God is just an angry God they have no relationship with. And they say, what's the point of prayer? He's not going to give me anything I want anyway. He's not going to do anything for me anyway. He doesn't like me. He's just up there angry in heaven, ready to you know, do whatever thing he's going to do to me. And so why should I pray to him? You know, I think there's a lot of people who have this kind of mindset of God that he doesn't want anything to do with me. He doesn't want to have a relationship with me. He's just up there. So what's the point? Jesus wants us to understand we have a Father in heaven. We need to recognize the relationship we have with God. Come to Him in prayer, recognizing it's an intimate thing. It's a privileged thing. I get to come to Him at all times because I am now His child. Another thing to keep in mind is that God is a perfect Father, unlike what many fathers are like here on this earth. You know, for many people, when they hear this term father, it's very negative because their father was such a jerk or their father did some horrible things to them. And so they hear that term, and all they associate with that term is something that is negative. But understand, God is a perfect father, a loving father, who never does anything wrong, never does anything sinful. And so we need to recognize as we approach him, 
That's who he is and the relationship we have with him. So Jesus says, pray our Father, but he also adds a phrase, in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. And I think there's two important things about the fact that he's in heaven. One of those is seen in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6. It says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? You know, this author is writing about, look, you are in heaven and you are in your majesty and power and might. And those here on earth, you know, there's nothing that compares to you. There's nothing that's too big for you. And I think so often when we come to God in prayer, we limit him. We don't recognize who he is. Oh, wait a second. We're coming to the creator of heaven and earth. We're coming to the God in heaven who created everything that we have. There's nothing that he can't do. There's nothing too big for him. And I think that's so important for us to remember as we approach God in prayer. But I think another interesting thing about God being in heaven, Psalm 11:4 tells us, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. You know, God who's in heaven, He sees everything. And I think sometimes we think prayer is a time to tell God something He doesn't know. There's nothing that God doesn't know. All right, Lord, I guess I'll be honest with you and tell you what I'm thinking or tell you what's going on or tell you how I feel. He already knows. We're not giving him some information that he's clueless of. He's all-knowable. He knows everything that's going on. He sees everything that happens. And I think it's important to remember, just come to the Lord in honesty. He already knows what's going on anyway. So Jesus says, pray our Father in heaven. But there's another thing that Jesus wants us to understand. He says, also pray, hallowed be your name. The Greek word here translated hallowed is used 29 times in the New Testament, and 26 of those times is translated sanctified. The word means to be holy, set apart, separate from profane and sinful things. And so when we speak this word hallowed, it's a recognition of the fact that God is holy, that God is separate from profane and sinful things. He is a sinless God. And I think there's two things important to remember about that as we come to God. First and foremost, it should give us confidence that when we pray to God, He's going to do what is right and what is best because He always does that because He's sinless. He's holy. We can't. We don't have to worry about, you know, is God going to do something sinful to me, something horrible to me, because that's completely against who God is. But I think another thing that we should recognize is because we understand that God is our Father. We understand we have intimacy. We understand we have that privilege. But sometimes I think we flippantly come to God because we understand He's our Father. And I think the fact that He's also holy, set apart, and sinless should cause us to come to Him with deep reverence. He's our Father, but He's also holy. And I think we have to have that balance of, yes, I have the privilege of coming to him at any time. Yes, it's intimate, but also I need to understand I should come with reverence. I should come with respect because he is a holy, perfect, sinless God. So we need to come to God in prayer with an understanding of who we're praying to. That's how we, Jesus starts here. Just recognize who it is you're praying to. You're praying to your Father in heaven. You have this privileged relationship, and he's also hallowed. He is sinless. He is holy. So don't just memorize these terms. Okay, if I just pray our Father because I have it memorized, or I just pray hallowed be your name, I got it under control. The point of these terms is to have a recognition of who it is we're praying to. 
So the first important thing we should understand about prayer is who it is we're praying to and the relationship we have with him. We're praying to a holy, all-powerful God that is our Father. Let's look at the second thing that Jesus says should be included into our prayers. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, the second thing I think maybe is one of the most important things of all this prayer, we should have an understanding of whose will and whose kingdom we should be addressing in our prayers. It's God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And why this is so important is because it's not our kingdom come and our will be done the way that we want it here on this earth. Too often I look and I listen to my own prayers to my life and hear other people's prayers, and I think we miss this vital point. It's not about my will, and it's not about my kingdom and my prayer life. It's about God's will and about God's kingdom. You know, there's a lot of teaching on prayer in the church today, and I think sadly some of it is very unbiblical because they miss this vital point right here that Jesus brings up. Prayer is not about getting God to do my will. It's about... Getting God to do, it's not about getting God to do what I want. Prayer ultimately is to align myself with God's will and what God wants. As I pray, it gets me in a tune, in alignment with what God desires and what He wants. Prayer is not an argument with God to persuade Him to move things our way. Instead, it's an exercise where we're enabled by the Spirit to move ourselves His way. G. Campbell Morgan said, The first passion of prayer is the passion that God's will may be done, that God's heart would be satisfied, and that God's purposes would be realized. God wants us to pray for His will and way above our own. There are some Bible teachers in the church world that say, you know, God wants you to pray and get whatever you want. Whatever is your will to happen, ask for it, and God will give it to you. Whatever your heart's desire is, ask for it, and God will give it to you. And they use two main passages of Scripture to try to back this up. They say, hey, you know what, all you got to do is ask God for whatever you want, He'll give it to you. Health, wealth, you know, whatever it may be, just ask, and you're guaranteed to have it. And here are the two Scriptures they use, and I want you to note that they missed something very vital in both Scriptures. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 is one of the main texts that they like to use. It says this, Now this is a confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we asked of Him. So these Bible teachers, they come to this verse and they say, See, all you have to do is ask what you want, and God not only will hear you, but He'll give it to you. Isn't this such a wonderful promise from God? Yes, it is a wonderful promise from God, but notice the portion of Scripture that they don't really focus on and miss. It's that very important phrase, according to His will. John tells us if we ask anything according to God's will, he will hear and he will answer. He doesn't say if you just ask anything that you want, especially according to your own will, that God is now obliged to give you what you ask for. If it's according to God's will, God says, absolutely, according to my will, I will give it, I will hear it, it will be yours. But ultimately what Jesus is saying is if it's not according to God's will, guess what? He's not going to give it to you. And so that's a very important phrase there that kind of undermines that mindset of, hey, ask whatever you want and God will give it to you. Another uh, verse that they use to try to build the same point is John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it shall be done for you. 
They only quote the latter part of that verse. The Bible says, ask whatever you desire, it will be done for you. Isn't that wonderful? Ask whatever you want. You can ask for all the wealth, all the health, anything you want. You want a brand new car, ask God, will give it to you. You want a brand new house, ask God, will give it to you. You know, you want to be perfectly healthy, ask God, will give it to you. Because look what it says. Ask what you desire, it shall be done for you. Once again, they leave out a very important statement. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, then ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. You see, the reality is when we're abiding in Jesus and his word, there's something that changes in us. We now desire his will, not our own. When we're abiding in him and his uh, word, there's something where it's like, I don't want now just to live for me. I'm wanting to live for you. And Jesus says, you know what? If you're abiding in me and my word, at that point in time, then you can ask what you desire because your desires are going to be like my desires. And just like the first thing, if it's my will, then I'll do it for you. So with both of those things, when you hear this statement of, hey, you know what, just ask God anything you want, it'll be given to you. They're missing these vital things if it's in the will of God. You know, a passage you won't see these Bible teachers bring up is James 4.3. You ask and you do not receive, for you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. They don't ever talk about this one. James clearly says, one of the reasons you don't get answered prayer is because all you're asking for is your own pleasures. And when they say, oh, you want a brand new car? Ask for it. Oh, you want a brand new house? Ask for it. Oh, you want this? That's my pleasures. I'm praying for that. And James says, hey, you're not going to get those things because you've asked amiss. It's not the heart of God. So this statement that Jesus gives, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, isn't just something we should quote. It's something we need to know the meaning of recognizing it's not about us. Prayer is not something where we now say, all right, God, I'm going to use you to get my will accomplished. It's, Lord, no, prayer is all about you accomplishing your will here on earth, just like you do there in heaven. The focus and desire of prayer isn't for God to do for us our will, but for us to pray for his. So the second important thing that we should understand about prayer is it's God's kingdom and God's will that should be the focus and desires of our prayer, not our kingdom and our will. Let's look at the third thing that Jesus says to be in our prayers, Luke 11, starting verse 3. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The third thing that should be in our prayers are the things that we need from God. And Jesus here gives us three specific things, three specific needs that we should include in our prayers. You know, so often uh, we, we don't really recognize and, and lift up our needs the way we should. But Jesus says, once you realize that it's all about God's will and God's kingdom first and foremost, then you can move to focusing on the needs that you have in life that God wants to meet. And notice the first need that Jesus says to pray for is, give us this day our daily bread. And using this term, our daily bread, Jesus is speaking about just the practical daily needs that we have, like food, shelter, you know, those types of things. He's saying, you know what, come to me with the practical needs that are in your life. And I think this is important because oftentimes, and I know growing up, I would pray for the great big things. You know, I remember when my grandma was dying of cancer. Well, that's worthy of prayer, you know, but you, you pick these great big things and I'm really going to pray for that. But I mean, my next meal yeah, you know, there, there's small things that we don't, well, why even bother God with that stuff? Recognizing, you know, we're his children. Nothing's too big and nothing's too small. He wants us to come to him and recognize, you're our provider. 
I want to pray for my needs. I want to pray that you would give to me the things that I need. And he promises us to give us what we need. But you know what? I think it's something as well that we need to recognize. He says, I promise to give you what you need, not what you want. And there's a distinguishing factor there because I think sometimes we convince ourselves the thing that we want is what we need, but is it really something that we need? And so sometimes God doesn't answer that. We're like, oh, I needed that, God. You promised to give me my needs. Well, actually, it wasn't a need. You just think it's a need. It's really just a want that you desire, but it's not something that you need. And I think it's great. And everyone can go on a mission trip to a third world country. Get out of America where we're so materialistic and have all this stuff, and we start thinking, well, I need this, and this person has it, so I need that. Go to a place where all they really do have is just tiny little shelter and barely enough food to survive, and it gives you a perspective of what true needs are. And so many of them who are Christians are just pleased and happy and, and not worried about that they don't have the latest technology and all these other things because you know they're just content with their needs. But I think we're in a culture where we're constantly bombarded with this mindset of, oh, you need more, you need more, you need more. Well, no, we don't. We want more, we want more, we want more, and we need to distinguish between the two. So one of the things we should always include in our prayer is asking God for our daily needs. Then Jesus tells us to pray, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. You know, one of the greatest needs that we have is a need to be forgiven for, from God. And guess what? You say, well, yes, I prayed that prayer, that's how I became a Christian, but you know what? Unfortunately, the day that we get saved, we don't stop sinning. We continue to sin, we continue to regularly sin, and so we need to continue to come back to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. 1 John 1, 9, a wonderful passage, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a huge need to come to God and say, Lord, I have done this sin, and I want you not only to forgive, but to cleanse me of the sin that I just did. You know, and that's easy for us because we recognize our sin and we want to be forgiven, but Jesus adds something to it that maybe isn't so easy for us. He says, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And this is something that's more difficult. Jesus is saying, you know what? You recognize your sin. You recognize that you need forgiveness from me. And so you ask for it, and I freely give it to you. Don't then turn around to the person who has sinned against you and say, I'm not forgiving you. But that's so often how it is. We say, oh, Lord, we need your forgiveness. Thank you so much for giving it to us. And then this person sins against us. There's no way I'm forgiving you. You jerk. How dare you do that to me? And God say, no, I am freely forgiving you, and I want you to turn around and freely forgive those who sin against you. Be a demonstration to them of what I've done for you and for them. The third need Jesus tells us to pray for is, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, the reality is all of us struggle with the temptations of life. Sinful temptations that come against us, and the one who often is throwing those temptations towards us is the evil one, is Satan. And so Jesus is saying, you know what, part of your prayer as you regularly come before the Lord is ask him to help you deal with temptations and also help you to deal with the spiritual battle that we're facing. We've just been starting that in Ephesians chapter 6 on Thursday night, looking at the importance of protecting ourselves from the spiritual battle. But there's also temptations that we face one of my favorite passages of Scripture when it comes to temptation is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You know, when we're tempted, this verse tells us something that's so important. God always gives us the way of escape so that we may be able to bear the temptation, so that we don't have to give in to the temptation, so that we can resist the temptation. So when we fall for temptation, it's not that we don't have a way out, because the scripture clearly says, if we're looking to God, he will offer and give us the way out of the temptation. Our problem isn't that there's not a way out. Our problem is we're not looking to God for it. It's there. If if we look to God and seek him when the temptation comes, he says, you know what, I'll give you the way out. I'll enable you to not fall into this temptation, to not give in to this temptation. Our problem oftentimes is we rely on our own strength, we rely on something else instead of looking to God and say, Lord, you offer it. I'm going to come to you for it and so that I can deal with this. And so Jesus is saying, you know what, pray to God. He's the one who can help you overcome the temptations that you face. But also, as we've been looking at in Ephesians, chapter 6, 10, and 11, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You know, the Bible tells us very clearly, God's given us everything we need to protect ourselves from the spiritual battle that we're in, from the enemy that we face, but yet we need to look to Him for strength. We need to look to Him to help us to fight that battle. So we should pray for God to help us with temptation and to deliver us from Satan. So the third important thing we should understand about prayer is we need to bring our needs before God. And those needs include our daily provision, forgiveness, overcoming temptation, and deliverance from Satan. So in this model prayer, remember it's not something just to repeat, it's a model prayer to help us understand important facets of prayer. Jesus reveals three things to understand and to include in our prayer. First, you're praying to a holy, all-powerful God, that's your Father. Recognize who you're praying to, recognize the relationship you have with Him. Second, it's God's kingdom and will that should be the focus and desires of our prayer, not our kingdom and our will. And third, We should pray for our needs, which include our daily provisions, forgiveness, overcoming temptation, and deliverance from Satan. So Jesus starts by responding to the disciples' request here. Teach us to pray, okay? Here's how you should do it. Here's a model prayer, but I'm not done. I have some principles that I want you guys to understand as well about prayer. And so he's going to teach them two important principles about prayer that are obviously important for us to learn as well. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus here uses an illustration to make an important point about prayer. He tells a story about a man who goes to his friend's house at midnight, and he asks to borrow three loaves of bread to give to someone who's visiting him. Well, the man responds, you know what? Don't trouble me. My door is shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot rise and give to you. 
Now, I think we need to understand something. In the custom of that day, uh, a whole family lived basically in one room. Uh, and so this would have been problematic. You, know, you put your kids to bed, and then you're kind of sleeping there next to them. Someone shows up at midnight after everyone's in bed wanting you to go rummage around and get some food for them. You know, Anyone who has little kids and you place them to bed and you finally get peace and quiet, you know how much of an imposition this would be at midnight trying to do this. And so he says, you know what? Go. My family's in bed. You know, I'm not going to come give you the bread that you need. You know, basically, come back in the morning. But notice how Jesus goes on to say, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So Jesus is saying, you know what? Just because this guy is his friend, he's not giving it to him. The reason he gives it to him is not because he's his friend. The reason he gives is that the guy doesn't stop. He's persistent. He keeps coming and saying, please give me the bread. Please give me the bread. Please give me the bread. And so Jesus is saying, the reason this guy gets the bread is he's persistently asking for it. And Jesus connects this illustration with prayer. Notice he says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, in the translation from Greek to English, there is something that we miss with what Jesus says here. In the Greek, there are two kind of imperatives. There is the aorist imperative, uh, which issues a command that you should do only once. For example, if I said, shut the door behind you, that would be a command that you would do once. Just then, you would shut the door behind you. But there's also a present imperative, which issues a command that you should always do something or continue to do something. If I were to say, always shut the door behind you, you would recognize it's not just this time, but any time that you come in here, always shut the door. It's a continual thing that you should be doing. Well, the imperative that Jesus uses here are present imperatives, which means that Jesus is saying, go on asking, go on seeking, go on knocking. This shouldn't just be a one-time thing. This should be something that you continue to do, which fits with the persistence in his illustration that he just referred to. So with all of these three things, Jesus is saying, you know what, you need to continue to do them. In Jesus' illustration, the man got what he needed because he persistently asked. And now he's saying, you know what, in prayer, be persistent. Continue to come. Continue to seek God. Continue to ask for these things. And I think it's important to recognize, I don't believe Jesus is saying, you know what, do this because I'm unwilling and need to be persuaded. I'm not really willing to give to you, so you need to be persistent if you really want what you're asking for. I believe Jesus says, be persistent, not for me, but for you. I want you to think for a moment, when you pray for something only once and never lift it up to God again, is it really that important to you? No. You can usually see what's really important by the amount of times you pray for it. When something's really important, you don't just stop at once. You don't even stop at ten times. You continue to pray and pray and pray until you get an answer. And I think that's what God says. You know, I want you to be persistent because it doesn't do anything to me. It changes you. You want your heart to change? You want to become more like me? You want to see my will? Keep praying for that thing. Lord, I'm desperate for this person that I love to be saved. And I keep praying and my heart for them just grows and grows. Or whatever it may be, that persistence does something in you. And I think the Lord oftentimes waits because he just wants us to grow in that passion and desire to see God move on our behalf. Be persistent. So the first important principle that Jesus teaches 
is that we need to be persistent in prayer. The second important principle is found in verses 11 through 13. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Once again, Jesus uses an illustration to make a point about prayer. He talks about a father and a child relationship, and he puts the disciples in the father role. Saying, if you fathers, most likely most of these disciples were fathers, he says, you know what, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, would you give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, would you offer him a scorpion? The answer to the question is obvious. No father is going to give something to their child when their child asks for something good and give them something evil instead. And Jesus brings it back says, you being evil, you being sinful men, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more the perfect, loving, heavenly Father will give good gifts to those who ask him. Jesus is comparing us, who are sinful, fallen creatures, to a perfect God and says, you guys as fathers know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more the perfect Heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts to now you, his adopted children, when you come to him in prayer. God only gives what's best for us. So the second important principle that Jesus teaches us that we need to pray and we are praying to a Father that only gives what's good for us. Now something we need to remember is that when we pray and God doesn't answer, He says no, He knows what's good for us. And we need to recognize, you know what, even though I might have desired that and wanted that, I need to trust that if God says no, He knows what's best, and that probably wasn't something that was good for my life. You know, I see this with my kids, and I'm sure any of you who are parents and relate to the reality of you tell your kids no to things because you know that's not good for you. You know, and kids don't know what's good or what's bad for them. They want everything. And, and oh, Daddy, please give me this, give me this. No. Well, why? And I recognize oftentimes they can't even understand, so I just have to say, you just need to trust me. This isn't good for you. What I want is so bad, give it to me. No, you can't have it. And then they get upset with you. When ultimately what you're trying to do is protect them because you know what, this is not good for you and since I love you, I'm not going to give it to you. You can ask and you can complain and you can whine all you want, but I'm still going to say no because I'm your loving father. And I think so often we're like the little kids to God, God, I want this so bad, just give it to me. Why are you being so, so mean to me when he's just saying, I'm not giving it to you because I know it's not good for you. You just don't get it. You think it's going to be good for you. You think it's going to be helpful for you, but I know better and I know this is not something you should have in your life. Just trust me. And I think that's the key. Are we willing just to trust him when he says no to say, okay, God, you know what's best. If you say no, I will just go with that and leave it at that and be happy that you answered my request. So in this section, we see five important things about prayer. First, we're praying to a holy, all-powerful God who's our Father. Second, it's God's kingdom and will that should be the focus and desire of our prayers, not our kingdom and our will. Third, we should pray for our needs, which include our daily provisions, forgiveness, overcoming temptation, and deliverance. Fourth, we should be persistent in our prayers. We should be asking continually, keep seeking, keep knocking. And then fifth, we need to understand that we're praying to a Father who only gives us what is good for us. 
Now remember, we started this section with the disciples coming to Jesus, asking him, teach us to pray. And Jesus doesn't share this so that this can be an intellectual exercise. All right, guys, all you got to do is repeat this. All you got to do is know this intellectually and you'll be good. He's like, no, the point of this, you want to know how to pray? Well, then pray using this. Actually do it. That's the goal. That should be, as we finish here, with any Bible study, it always should be, how does this apply to my life? Not, oh, you know what, I understand prayer a little better. Isn't that nice? No, if you don't use it, it's useless. I understand prayer a little bit better, and I'm going to apply it to my life. Now, that's beneficial. That's helpful. And I want us to close this morning just taking some time to putting this into practice. We'll take some time to use this model and just pray together to the Lord. And I also want to encourage you, Tuesday night, this Tuesday, 730 at our house, we're having a time of prayer and worship, another time just to come together as a body of believers and just seek the Lord in prayer, use this great model uh, to do that. But let's just take some time together. Uh, I'm just going to leave it open. Uh, I'll close us in prayer, but uh, I encourage you, if you desire to pray, if there's something on your heart to lift before the Lord, I'd encourage you to you know, just try to implement some of these things of recognizing who it is we're praying to, but maybe the most important is, it's not about my will, it's not about my kingdom, it's about God's will being done, but also recognizing God wants us to bring our needs to Him. So if there are needs that you have here this morning that you want to lift up and have the rest of us agree with, then I would encourage you to do that. But let's just take some time to come before the Lord in prayer to put these things into practice, uh, and then uh, I will close this in prayer after we do that. For the